Thanks for listening to The Upload. I'm Allison Bektesh. Today, we will be chatting about the ever-changing public health orders in Picking County. And just days out from Aspen's municipal elections, we will look at the standouts in the crowded field. I have with me now Megan Tackett. Hi, Megan. Hi, Allison. And our reporter, Matthew Bennett. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Allison. Thank you both so much for joining on The Upload today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, goodbye traveler affidavit. This is a legal document that we put into place at uh, mid-December, hoping that people who were coming to Picking County could prove to us and themselves and the world that they were COVID-free, thus giving us a um, very healthy tourist season, right? That's gone now, Matthew. Uh, let's talk about what, why. <laughs> sure, sure. The, the Board of Health met yesterday once again, and to set the stage, last meeting, uh, Mayor Tory of Aspen really brought up the point that he wanted to just talk more about the traveler affidavit. Um, the mayor of Snowmass Village, too, came out um, and said he, too, wanted to have the discussion. That's what really um, was the headlining topic at this meeting, if you will. And as you know, uh, ACRA met earlier this week, and they were also very adamant about not necessarily doing away with the traveler affidavit, but sort of softening the language, maybe changing some verbs, you know, really maybe toning it down a little bit to sound less like a legal document, but Act yeah. as a chamber. So they're representing our businesses. Exactly. But really, um, you know, cut and dry, the, the visitor affidavit will um, no longer be an affidavit beginning March 5th, which is next Friday. And instead it'll be the traveler awareness program. <laughs> the big detail within that is the testing requirement, the negative test within 72 hours of arriving um, will no longer be required, but instead um, the word recommended. So. Okay, so already um, this was this was a shot in the dark, hoping that people would A, find out about it and B, comply, right? Because we weren't going to check people um, in vehicles or, or airplanes coming into town to make sure they had their negative COVID test. This was a, you should do this and if you end up being sick and we see that you pranced around town with, you know, as a positive uh, COVID-19 case, we could hold you accountable. We maybe we'll go into restaurants and randomly search to make sure you have your affidavit. I did not hear of that happening once. So like our, the legal side that the most restrictive thing barely had muster, what's going to, how is this now going to um, keep our, keep us healthy? Like how is this new phase going to have any weight behind it? That's a great question. And I think some would argue um, that all along, even with the affidavit, and that this is really not much different if there's not going to be any enforcement. And to your point, Allison, when I spoke to the county's a county spokesperson, um, I was told that the county has not, in one instance, um, brought any charges forth, if you will, as it relates to the affidavit specifically, um, despite the fact that you know, 70,000 have really been collected. And as Debbie Bronze, the ACRA president CEO said, you know, she couldn't help but wonder um, how many more, you know, didn't come to Aspen as a result of that. So I think now really, um, as it, it is similar to what it was before, minus the testing and the affidavit language is gone, but it's really just sort of a, a pledge, if you will. It doesn't really have any teeth or, um, I mean, Dr. Tom Kurt suggested giving I love Aspen masks out to people that completed and Marky Butler also discussed 
a $25 sort of gift certificate, but wasn't immediately clear how they planned on paying for any of that. But <laughs> at any rate, um, that's kind of where we are. Well, and I think it's really interesting too, right? Because I think that for the people for whom it really mattered, right? The people who really had concerns about traveling, I think that affidavit actually was an incentive, right? You know, I believe Patty Clapper and Greg Poshman and some of the other health board members when they say that they have received praise and thanks for implementing the affidavit program. Um, I just think that everything is a double-edged sword. That that was something that a lot of states, as you rightly pointed out in your article, Matt, like a lot of states have implemented these things early on, but, you know, picking county was unique in that they did it at a county level. It is interesting as we talk about these things, you know, what, what has the most recent conversation been of the community? Well, it's been pretty anti-affidavit. So here we are talking about all the downsides of the affidavit, whereas six, just a mere six months ago, we were wishing that Pickens County, you know, had a little bit more teeth and was mirroring some of the states like Maine that was early on in adopting things like a traveler affidavit. So it's just interesting to kind of always look back and zoom out and see how, you know, in such a short amount of time, perceptions have swung in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. will get into some of that data so we can surmise, uh, did this help Picking County or did this hurt Picking County, especially on the tourism side, right? Like that's what we're talking about. No one's asking, did this help Picking County stay healthy when we're weighing, should we keep it in or not? That's not even, we don't have the, the numbers. Um, that wasn't included in the article, right? Yes, we had less tax dollars, but we had this kind of incident rate. That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're specifically focused on the economy. And just from a business standpoint, like you said, this was the only county to do it. So in a crowded field of travel options, was it wise just for marketing to be the one that is quote, the healthiest on paper, because we're the ones where we have this high standard, right? You have to prove you're negative. Now we're in the little bubble where everyone's negative. You can do whatever you want on your ski vacation. Like just marketing wise, maybe that was the way to go. We do have some of these numbers though, Matthew. Um, uh, Let's talk about year over year, Locally with restaurants, how many tax dollars we pulled in during in that December month with the qualification that this affidavit did not start until December 14th. Right. So with with Aspen, it was interesting how the, the report was broken out and that it actually showed retail sales that the restaurants did. And at first I was blown away because I was like, wow, they collect. But then I realized it wasn't the sales tax, but it was the retail sales itself. But yeah, it was really remarkable. And I think To answer the question, really, if I can, I'd like to read you this one sentence I pulled up out of the actual Aspen tax report. And it says, um, this is for December 2020, with the Board of Public Health decision to move into level red restrictions on December 21st, which they're really talking about orange plus plus, right? (laughs) It was red. It was just indoor dining was still somewhat closed. Aspen's December tourism-centric economy experienced a one-third drop in local spend. And I thought that was really remarkable. And then you can again see that because in December 2019, you had 72 restaurants and bars that brought in, um, it was close, it was over $15 million essentially in retail sales between 15 and 16 million. And that same category um, one year later was just over 10. So that $5 million difference, um, one third drop. And also keep in mind that the month of December too is so critical for these businesses because that's you know, that's the bread and butter of their um, money-making season, really. And yeah, and I think to your point too, Allison, 
there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but not a lot of, you know, scientific empirical evidence. And even when we have, you know, reports like this, you can't really still pinpoint, well, was this exactly because of the traveler affidavit? Maybe people just canceled the trip to Aspen because they didn't want to come anymore because, you know, the, the pandemic. So, and I think that's a lot of the frustration is just, we don't really know for sure. And at what point, um, are, are the restrictions doing more harm than good, frankly, I think is the message a lot of people are. Right. And again, yeah. economic harm and good, not necessarily public health. The one um, caveat I'll give to that data is the, the biggest difference in my mind between 2019 and 2020, when you're looking at our quote bar and restaurant category is that bars are closed. Do you know how fun it is to go drinking in Aspen when you get off the mountain or post dinner or whenever? Just, just retail sales of alcohol for yeah. those places that can't operate as restaurants. To me, five million sounds like that alone, you know, could cover it. So it is hard to play with these numbers. Um, and Megan, you've had a couple of observations in some of the numbers that we've been handed as well. Yeah, and and before I dive into that, my heart just hurt so much when you talked about do you know how much fun it is to go drinking in Aspen after getting off the mountain? I just had this flash. Do you guys remember not the 2021 Winter Local Magazine, but do you remember the 2020 Winter Local Magazine? Oliver Sharp had an article in there, and the headline was something along the lines of "Is Opera Dead?" and <laughs> I, you know, and, and he was like, you know, comparing all the different vibes and 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 um, interpretations of what constitutes proper opera. And I'm like, what crystal ball did you have? And how exactly. dare you? Oh, I'm glad we finally have someone to blame this on. It was exactly. Oliver Sharp. it's all Oliver Sharp's fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I did when I was editing your story last night, Matt, um, you're right. Absolutely. Both of you are in that you know, what's so frustrating about this is we are going to be able to look back in hindsight and, and make some observations. But in the moment, there is no em empirical data. We're, we're, you know, in unknown territory every single week of every single month that this thing goes on. And so you do the best you can and hope that it pans out and mirrors somewhat of what your good intentions were, but you don't really know. Um, that being said, I was so thrilled that you took the initiative to go get the sales tax reports, not just of the information from our area, Aspen Snowmass, but also you went out and looked at Vail. You didn't include this in your story, but you also looked in Telluride, you know, just a lot of these comparable resort towns that the elected officials and, you know, ACRA board members who from the outset have been kind of critical of the travel affidavit, that's been their biggest thing is saying, hey, you know, people aren't coming to Aspen, they're going to Breckenridge this year. And if they have a good time in Breckenridge, what if they now that's their year, yearly tradition, right? Maybe they don't come back to Aspen. Um, and when I was editing your story, I kind of stopped and double read, like to make sure that I was looking at the numbers and interpreting correctly. When I saw that, you know, not comparing Aspen to Vail necessarily, because Vail is a larger resort or whatever, but comparing Aspen to Aspen, Aspen, December, 2020, Aspen, December, 2019, to Vail and Vail, Vail 2020 to Vail 2019, looking specifically at the lodging sales tax was so enlightening to me. And it's the first time I've seen the juxtaposition of that data. You know, we talk about restaurants. 
every local in this valley supports our restaurants. So, you know, you're going to have a lot of locals contributing to that sales tax, but locals are not going on staycation. You know, the Carbondalians are not staycationing <laughs> at the Little Nell, right? That, that really is a nice snapshot of the, of the visitors. And 20, December 2019 to December 2020, um, Aspen saw a 40% dip in the lodging sales tax collected. Vail in the same time period only saw a 20% dip. So if you compare that data, those two numbers would suggest that, yeah, Aspen actually did see in, in a sector that is very specifically identifying the tourists, the people who are coming into this town, um, it, it would appear that we saw twice the the dip that veiled it. So it does beg the question, like to your point, Matt, maybe it wasn't all COVID-19 traveler affidavit, but wow, wow. Aspen saw a 40% dip and Vail only saw a 20% dip. It is difficult to not read into that number. Right, right. Um, and I, I think too, another thing we were kind of discussing earlier was also, I'm sure y'all fielded quite a bit of emails from readers just wondering sort of what's going on in Aspen. And I, I think, too, just outside of the traveler affidavit, we have to keep in mind, you know, the traveler affidavit was on the books December 14th, took effect. But, you know, it was up in early December and word got out. And when I spoke to Tracy Trulove yesterday, again, the county spokesperson, the public information officer, she, she said she had talked to reporters from The New York Times um, about the traveler affidavit. So and then you have the orange plus plus, then you have the red. And I think. One of the biggest um, problems too, again, ACRA had with it all was that if you're gonna start going with the state, go with the state, you know, and the travel affidavit clearly is not a part of the state, um, nor has it ever been. Um, but yeah, and, and to take it on at a county level, if you just look at the neighbor, I mean, you can't help but wonder, you can't pinpoint for sure, but you can't help but wonder um, if something's 40% down year over year in December and another's 20% down, and they're within a certain radius of one another, that's telling, I think. Yeah. I want to, I don't want this um, to get lost. Nearly 70,000 affidavits received. And I don't actually understand what that means. Um, was there an online form that you filled out and, and just hit submit? Is this pieces of paper that people are giving to their concierge when they get to the hotel? What, where, where and how are we collecting those 70,000 visitor affidavits? Sure. It's all on the uh, Pickett County website. It's a real, it's about a five, I wouldn't even call it page. It's just little um, rectangles that have different <laughs> steps in them, but okay. very easy to fill out. It's basically just your name, address, and then it, it lists the five commitments of containment and then the right. map order. Um, but yeah, you just hit submit and then it just disappears into the internet. And then it's my understanding the county holds on to it for a little, a certain amount of time, but not long. And again, there hasn't been a single case where it's been prosecuted. So whether we all have our personal opinions or not as to um, if the affidavit hurt our economy or saved our public health, saved our community this winter, um, as Debbie Braun would say, it doesn't matter. We can debate till we're blue in the face whether or not these statistics are showing what we think it is or not. What she said during the chamber's meeting this week is, shut it down. We don't want the, we don't want the affidavit anymore. Instead, we want this new thing, this other agreement where we're still asking our visitors to come in informed as to what our public health orders are and to commit to be a part of that. Let's just go that way moving forward and not even debate whether it was helpful or not in the past. So Megan, now we have this new agreement. My understanding is no longer legal. 
that's still going to, the, the, their objective is still public health. Yes, absolutely. And that is something that the county, um, especially after Thursday's uh, health board meeting, that is something the county sent not one, but two different press releases about simply saying, hey, by the way, um, no, you no longer have to commit to receiving a negative COVID-19 test within 72 hours of arriving in Picking County. It is still strongly recommended. But, and I quote, begin effective Friday, March 5th, 2021, visitors will still be required to fill out an agreement on the Picking County website and are encouraged, although not required, per CDC travel guidance to get tested before visiting Picking County. So even though that um, expectation regarding the testing itself has been diminished. And that was really the point of contention between people who were pro-affidavit and people who were very much feeling that this affidavit is keeping people from visiting, right? Um, but it is still right now as an awareness program um, being utilized as an education tool. So it is still technically required. It is still mandated that you at least still go to the website and click off saying, I have read the five commitments and I will follow our mitigation public health strategies, right? <laughs> Might get a cool mask if you do it too. I mean, if <laughs> that's cool true, mask. if that's true, hand that out to me. I'll take twenty-five dollars to spend at a restaurant. Like both of those things really threw me off and opens a whole other can of worms that we won't talk about today. But just who you're courting and who you're supporting um, between locals, locals and visitors. It's it's always been that way, right? Like who's actually more important to this town? Um, that might lead us right in then, Megan, to uh, other elections that are coming up on city council, especially being that multiple candidates during squirm night, which is kind of this debate um, that we put on and you moderated last week, um, talked about tuning in for the public health meetings and that they were pleasantly surprised to see that discourse. I think these public health meetings might be some of the first government meetings that a lot of our community members are watching. You know, I don't think they've they've done like Robert's rules of order or, or point of order stuff in their life. And then they see that there is um, a pretty reasoned process through this to the extent that it's gotten a lot of people to throw their name in for elected office this year. Yeah. Um, and I, I completely agree. Right. I think that local government like politics is local. Right. Like government is really local. And yet we say that. Um, and most of us go through our lives without ever really feeling that and without ever really consciously thinking about how our local governments impact our day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, like echoing, echoing what Matt said, none of us thought we were going to be living through a pandemic either. So all of a sudden, for the first time, if you're going about your day and pretty, you know, content with, with you know, you're busy, you've got work, maybe you've got kids, you've got a family, whatever, maybe you're just a powder hound and there's snow to chase, right? But you've got your priorities and they're not following city council. All of a sudden, for the first time in your life, in a very jarring way, local government decisions are impacting your day to day. You suddenly can't leave your home. You can't go to your favorite bar. You don't get opera after a powder day, right? And so right. I think that that motivated a lot of people in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise considered to really take a look and see how the proverbial sausage is made, right? <laughs> um, and and it, it, it has been really impressive. We have two open city council seats in Aspen, as you well know, Allison, you've been spearheading our election coverage to great efficacy, thank you. Um, but uh, we have eight candidates. That's crazy to me. 
So we have uh, eight candidates for city council. The most that um, all the election nerds that I know of in town have have confirmed that we've ever had. And then 10 total, of course, because we do have a challenger in the mayoral race. How how did some of those set themselves apart during squirm night? Let's let's focus really on these eight for the city council. Did you find that anyone taught you anything about themselves or set themselves apart during squirm night, Megan? You know, yeah, um, I, I, I was really pleasantly surprised in a lot of ways. You know, there um, there were some candidates that I, you know, other than uh, Ward Howenstein, the incumbent, the, you know, the other seven are all not necessarily political newcomers, although many of them absolutely are. Right. Um, but, you know, some of them have, have served on like next gen type boards before. But I think this is probably the most prominent um, kind of race that any of them have thrown their, their names into. And um, it was, I was so pleasantly surprised by several candidates. Um, and, and perhaps perhaps this is unfair and I'm showing my own bias here, but, you know, as somebody in it with a communications background and journalist who follows races and things of that nature, um, I was looking early in, right. And seeing how campaigns were shaping up. And for instance, like Aaron Smitty was very slow to the game in terms of getting a campaign together. Um, but when she showed up on Squirm Night, even with some technical difficulties and slow internet and all that jazz, uh, you know, she was very impassioned on what she had to say. She had clearly thought about her position. You know, she clearly didn't enter this race sort of willy nilly. Uh, there was, a, I was, I was impressed. Um, Mark Reese as well. I was so surprised with Mark, like very, very pleasantly. I actually thought that Mark was one of the best uh, shows at, at Squirm Night. He was so prepared. He was relaxed. He was easygoing. He's charming, rocking his daughter's headphones when he had his own technical difficulties. <laughs> but his answers were really balanced. They were well thought out. Um, I... I was really floored. I mean, I found myself lobbying for his endorsement with the editorial board. Megan, I felt the same way covering it that, uh, you know, I had my ballot out in front of me and someone would say an answer. And I'm like, oh, let me fill in for that. And then the next person would say an answer. And I was like, well, that's a great point too. Let me fill in for that. And so um, it's, it's so encouraging to see the most crowded field ever and of people who did their research and showed up. I agree with you. Aaron Smitty, I think is probably a sleeper candidate who isn't getting much attention from either editorial board. Um, she doesn't have the website. She doesn't have the signs. So likely will not come out ahead, but it's one of those things where a lifetime local former law enforcement officer decided this is the year I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. We talk all the time, especially during COVID-19 coverage that no matter what the news is this week, we cover it because it's a point in time. It's a snapshot in time. And we're making this pandemic time capsule as we speak. I'm wondering what either one of you think the, the snapshot we're seeing in this candidate field is teaching us. Yeah, we talk about how we are sort of writing the rough draft of history, right? Um, and I think that in considering, as I know I personally do all the time, of when we do have the pandemic in the rearview mirror and we are reading what we hope are recent archives of the pandemic, um, what are we as a society going to gleefully return back to as normal? And what are we going to realize this pandemic has taught us in general and hopefully shift those elements of normal to maintain those lessons? And I really think in this campaign, one of those lessons is 
more citizen engagement is better for the whole. Even if you don't win the race, you have shaped the conversation and the considerations of whomever does along the way. And as far as what lessons can we take from this moment, I hope that it doesn't require a pandemic to <laughs> jolt people into this level of engagement moving forward. And hopefully we see that engagement on both sides. So we have um, typically about 50% of our Aspen registered voters will show up. So last we have about 6,000 registered voters, 3,200 voted in the last election. We are right on pace as far as early returns right now. Um, but a lot of people do like to wait to the last minute. They wait for those endorsements from the paper. They like to go press the buttons on the machine day of. And we just don't know with COVID how many people are going to be physically showing up or waiting till that last moment. So I, I hope that the voter engagement is just as robust as the candidate engagement was. Uh, Megan, it might be that people are waiting for those endorsements. The Aspen Daily News did come out with theirs today. Having never worked for a uh, commercial newsroom during an election before, I myself don't know the process for what it means when a paper and paper's editorial board endorses a candidate. You had a couple late nights this week making sure that that was done very responsibly. Can you walk us through how that happens? And this was a difficult one, right? I mean, the election is coming up and with COVID, right? There is that early voting. So I will be the first to admit a little bit of a mea culpa. It's something, it's an adjustment that moving into this new normal, I have a feeling early voting will be part of continuing. So I need to think a little differently about the timing of endorsements and getting them out earlier would be my two cents on that. That being said, it just wasn't going to happen this time. And so we did have to meet a second night um, because there was absolutely no agreement the first time. Wow. And None whatsoever. Um, I, I, you know, I laughed. You, uh, Cook and I were joking quite a bit that we don't think we've ever so vehemently disagreed with one another before. <laughs> um, and uh, which is good, right? I mean, it, it was, it was very robust conversation and you could feel just as Allison, your experience of like marking up your ballot during squirm night of, oh, this is a good point. Oh, but this is a good point. You know, as I wrote in the endorsement reflecting the ultimate vote, um, it wasn't just the quantity of the candidates that made the decision so difficult. It was also the quality. You know, th there wasn't really anybody that we just completely wrote off. And um, so that made for very robust hours long conversation. Um, and like I said, we ended up doing two nights in a row. Our original intention was to publish endorsements for all open seats, uh, mayoral and council candidates in Thursday's paper. And we realized very late at about 7.40 in the evening Thursday that this wasn't going to happen. So let's do the mayoral endorsement for Thursday with an editor's note to stay tuned for Friday's paper to hold us accountable. Like we have got to figure this out for council candidates. Um, so it was it was a really difficult decision, um, but I think a very fair one. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I'll be honest, at one point on Thursday, uh, one one option that was brought up and apparently my predecessor did this once for an endorsement of basically saying, listen, there is no bad choice. Here's wow. how we feel are the strengths and weaknesses of everybody. God help you like Godspeed kind of thing. <laughs> So we I, went with Ward Howenstein and Sam Rose, um, kind of a let's get some old guard, let's get some new guard and mix that in with, of course, the standing, the three members who are standing um, and and throw that into the mix. Was that so there, there needed to be a majority vote on our editorial board in order to yes. select that? And then and what was the thinking behind that? 
yes. So there needs to be a majority vote. <laughs> um, and I have definitely written, I, I did this with one of the commissioner um, endorsements that we wrote. I have written endorsements that were not reflective of my personal vote on the editorial sure. board, right? That's that's how democracy works. Um, and so there was a majority vote. We agreed on that assessment finally. Um, and, you know, there was, there was some early resistance to giving Sam Rose the endorsement. Uh, I was an I was an avid fighter for that endorsement <laughs> um, on, on my vote, but uh, there was some resistance and 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 very good points brought up. Basically, of you know he is going to be a model council member next time, right? Okay, give him okay. just give him one more round. Give him the next several years to really continue on his already very impressive path of service uh, in this community, right? Um, it's difficult to argue with firefighter, victim advocate, contact tracer, you know, willing to donate his first year's salary, you know, like, I mean, it's just, there's, there's no, I mean, he's beyond reproach in terms of his character and his preparedness for both Squirm Night and his um, interview with the editorial board. I mean, he's just a very thoughtful young man. And I think he's going to make an absolute asset on the council, as do, as does everyone on the editorial board, you know, after going round and round and round, you know, some of the people who were the most vocal about their trepidation are now his biggest champions, you know, <laughs> um, and so and that's and that's just the nature of how that discourse goes. And it's something that it's, it's a process that I'm very proud of. And I hold very near and dear to my heart, because I do think that while you know, the fourth estate is all about holding accountability and, and reporting on bias. There's a reason we don't have any reporters on our editorial board, right? right? right. There's the reason I don't have any sales reps in my newsroom. <laughs> there is that separation of church and state. Um, but I do think the endorsement process is a very important one for a newspaper and, and its general role in the community, right? Because, you know, we are a platform, but we're also, we also do have a voice and it's important that people, you know, people do turn to us. You know, we are the ones who are doing the interviews and organizing the squirm nights and assigning reporters to, to cover various angles of the stories and the candidates and, and tracking the finance reports and all of that. Um, and so it makes sense that a voter who's overwhelmed by an eight candidate ballot would turn to the newspaper's endorsement for guidance. Um, and I think that that's an opportunity for the newspaper to also remind the community it serves who we are, you know, in choosing candidates to endorse, those candidate endorsements are a reflection of our character and the values that we prioritize as well. Um, and I think that Sam Rose and Ward Howenstein are a good reflection of that as well. You know, um, I, I, I do believe in, as a newspaper, the Aspen Daily News, we are the independent scrappier newspaper and we are the ones that pride ourselves on being able to be a little bit more visionary because we're not beholden to that larger corporate structure. So we're more nimble and we're able to play with ideas. And so I think endorsing Sam Rose, the 27 year old who didn't vote in the last election just because he wasn't a resident, right? Um, but, but he's proving himself and has proven himself. And so absolutely he gets our endorsement. Mean, But that doesn't mean that we're we don't want, you know, a quote unquote grown up in the room, not that Sam isn't that, but like, you know, Ward, Ward Howenstein 
is an incumbent and you know i he was another one that impressed us right like one of the downsides you know incumbents typically in an election have so many advantages but one disadvantage they have is that they have the voting record right. you know we've had the time to form strong opinions and judgments about his decision as a council member right and there have been times that you know we talked about it we haven't agreed with his his uh final votes um but when you do have so many newcomers, um, it is important to have that experience. To me on Squirm Night, the one question that um, I thought was most telling was when was the last time you sat through a council meeting? And right, and, and none of them had in a long time, if ever. Some of them, like you said, Allison, had tuned into the health board meetings for the mm -hmm. first time. And so to me, Ward has always been nothing if not prepared in council meetings. And, you know, he has changed his stances. And I don't necessarily hold that against people if they're if they're changing their mind because they've been persuaded with new information. I think that's actually a strength. Um, and so, yes, I do want somebody, one of those two seats to go to the person who has sat through the five hour uh, candidate or the council meetings and has poured over those details and does actually know what the job itself is. Right. I think that's why we threw that question in there because I'm, I'm concerned that there's um, many people who want good for our community without realizing what city council does and doesn't have to do with that. And so right. if you're, it's a four-year commitment and those meetings are boring. I sit through every minute of every single one of them. They're absolutely boring. If you aren't prepared for that and you hate the first two months of your job, are you going to stick around for four years just to get to that one vote that's going to bring a couple more affordable housing units to our community? Right. No, precisely, precisely. I actually had a moment, Allison, I was kind of chuckling to myself during Squirm Night when they were trying, when some of the candidates were struggling to try and answer that question, I kind of laughed. I was like, man, if Allison ever decides to run for council, she's going to be the most qualified <laughs> candidate ever in the history of Aspen Council candidates. <laughs> well, just to conclude then um, on the same theme, we've got eight qualified candidates for two open seats. Our editorial board needed an extra day to, to figure out what they were going to do. Um, we are likely looking at a runoff election. And just to go through that really quickly, what that means in Aspen, you, it's not just like um, top vote getters win and then we move on. You must receive 45% of the vote, 45.1% of the vote in order to be basically to, to show that there is enough support for you, right? Like that's the idea behind that. We could, you could split the vote so much and each candidate only gets 20%. That's 80% of the electorate that doesn't like you. So this is Aspen's way of making sure that candidates are well supported. 45.1% or more, you would need about 1400 votes if our voter count looks anything like last year. It is very plausible that no one gets that on March 2nd, this coming Tuesday when the election is, in which case our four top vote getters will in, will then square off. That is as crowded as the field's been in other years. So that is a genuine redo of a real election. You know, um, four, now four up against each other in that second one, which would be April 6th, it will just be the top two vote getters will get those top two seats. There's also a scenario where um, someone does get 45%, they're in, then it's just the top two next people are going off. Uh, and then there's a scenario where more than one person gets more than 45%, in which case we'll go with the top vote getter. So I think it's gonna be incredibly exciting on Tuesday night because of this split vote crowded field factor. I completely agree with you, Allison. And you know, early, early on, there were some obvious candidates in people's minds who were in the know, especially with the first um, 
that first uh, finance the campaign finance report right. that came out. It's like, oh no, we have some emerging leaders here. Uh, and now that is not the case at all. I'm fair. I would say I'm pretty confident that we will absolutely be looking at a runoff situation. You know, the field ended up evening out and, and a lot of contenders have emerged much more strongly than I think people anticipated early on. Matthew Bennett, Megan Tackett, thank you so much for joining me on the upload. <laughs> thank you so much for having us, Allison. Thank you so much.